It's great to, uh, it's great to be here this morning. Um, my wife and I, we moved house yesterday. Six blocks. So that was great. It was a lot of fun. Um, appreciated some help with that. After we got done moving, we had a few people just hang out for a little while, and we busted out the old N64. That's right. It wasn't Bond. It wasn't, you know, it was Mario Kart. Got out the Mario Kart, and I saw four people playing Mario Kart, and I thought, I, I have a... I've got to get in on this because these guys are just doing horrible and <laughs> I've got to show them how it's done and then this guy who thought he was so smart picked like the hardest level and anyway so I get in there and just look like a fool and get beat up and I, uh, I don't like to lose. I'm a St. Louis Cardinals fan. I'm a baseball guy. I've been a baseball guy most of my life so I, I don't have to lose that much because the Cardinals are... <laughs> good at winning. So oftentimes I get to celebrate with them. I'm also a St. Louis Rams fan, which means half the year I'm depressed and <laughs> half the year I'm excited. So depending on when you catch me, it might depend on how I respond to you if you say something about sports. But really, I mean sports, Mario Kart, whatever it is, it's all performance-based, isn't it? It's all if you win, you do well, life's good and you're happy. If you lose, you don't do well, life's bad, probably a grumpy guy or Whatever, And I, I tend to be performance-based just in a lot of areas of life. I think that's why when I come up on a green light and, you know, I'm thinking I'm going to be late. I really got to hit this. I got to make sure it continues to stay green. I can't let it go red on me. So I start, Jesus, help me get through this green light. Help me, you know, I'll do anything, Lord. I'll, I'll pray more. I have faith. I believe it. I know it's true. You're going to make this green. And, you know, I get through it and it's green. I'm like, oh, man really had faith there. I really knew that was going to happen. I mean, <laughs> the next one's going to happen too. And yeah, you know, some days get all the way through with all green. You're like, it's going to be a stellar day. <laughs> God's on my side. I read my Bible. And then other days, you know, you're praying and Jesus, make it green. And it goes yellow, like right as you're saying that and try and speed up and get a ticket. And it's not good. It's bad news. But the right, the light goes red and you're like, what did I do? Did I not have enough faith? Did I not? Jesus, what's wrong? Why do you hate me? And I just want to be to work on time. You know, this meeting's important. And I mean, it's not that extreme, but I mean, whether it's red light, green light, or whether it's life, I mean, when life's going green, you know, we tend to kind of attribute that to ourselves. We tend to think, oh, I've, I must be living with faith right now. I must be walking well. I must be doing what... God wants me to do. When life's red, when life's bleeding red, and it's kind of red lights everywhere, and it feels like, why is life so hard, and why are all these things happening? I tend to think, God, what did I do? Why did I? Why are you doing this to me? Is this some sort of punishment? Is this some sort of? Is this some sort of like you know, my my wrath for the things that I've? I don't even know what I've done, God, but I must have done something. We start kind of beating ourselves up, kind of start throwing ourselves under the bus. And we really all do this, don't we? We all kind of live with this performance mentality. It's why when we're in relationships and we feel like we're doing really well, when we feel like, man, I've been so good to this person and they're not good back to us, we get mad about it. Because we think, I've performed for you. You should validate me. I've performed for you. You should accept me. I've performed for you. You should perform for me. It's why when we don't perform in relationships, when we kind of aren't the friend we're meant to be. We aren't the Christian we're meant to be. We feel 
you know what, I deserve my punishment. I, I'm kind of going to live under the weight of this guilt for a while. I'm going to live under the weight of this separation for a while. When we know we've screwed up in a relationship, we withdraw from that relationship. So you think, oh, I can't, I can't be around that person. I need to kind of punish myself here. I need to kind of just pull myself back here. That's why we get so bent out of shape when something bad happens to us and we feel like we don't deserve it. Right? So we get to saying, how do bad things, how do so many bad things happen to so many good people? Right? You've heard that. How do bad things happen to good people? If they're a good person, shouldn't good things happen to them? And if they're a bad person, shouldn't bad things happen to them? It's because we think every good thing we do is tied, every good thing we get is tied to something good we did. And every bad thing we get is tied to something bad that we did. It's a performance mentality. It's really a a mentality of if I perform, then I'll get benefited. If I don't perform, I won't get benefited. And this is the... Uh, culture. This is the way church life was in the Colossian church when Paul's writing this letter. Colossians were steeped in this performance mentality. When you walk into the book of Colossians, it's important to understand what you're walking into. It's not like walking into the Corinthian church. So walking into the Corinthian church is walking to, into an incredibly experience-based church. So the Corinthian church was a church that love to experience things. That's why you see a a ton of sexual immorality. That's why you see a lot of gluttony and licentiousness. You see these Corinthians thinking, whatever we can do to experience more, we'll do it. It doesn't matter if it's sin or not. It doesn't matter if it's good or not. If we can experience, if we can sense things more, if we can get kind of higher into the sensory world, then it's good. In, In the Colossians, they weren't so caught up in experience. They were caught up and performance. So if you walk into the Colossian church, you're going to see people who are intense about God and people who love to read about the Old Testament and people who love to fast. You might walk up to someone and be like, man, I had breakfast this morning. It was so good. Then I say, I've been fasting for two weeks trying to get these big visions, you know, trying to see the heavenly realm for what it really is. I mean, that's great. You ate food, but I mean, I've been fasting, trying to get close to Jesus here. Sorry, buddy. You might walk into them and they say, no, 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 I'm not eating that and I'm not drinking that because I want to stay holy for God. I don't want to, I don't want to pollute myself with these things that are below the heavenly spiritual realm, right? So things like working out may have been looked down on like, oh, you're just vain. You're caught up in your image because you like to exercise and stay healthy and take care of your body. It's like... No, I like to take care of my body. But it needed to be spiritual. It needed to be hyper-intense like that in the Colossian world. And this is the scene that Paul's rolling onto. This is the scene that Paul's writing about. And we're starting here in verse 16, but really there's a whole chapter and a half before where we start. And the way Paul starts this verse is with a therefore. He says, therefore. Anytime you see a therefore in the Bible, you have to ask yourself, what's it there for? Right? So we're going to ask ourselves that question. Well, for the first chapter and a half, Paul expands upon, declares, explains, thinks about, revels in Jesus. That's where he starts his letter. That's where he begins the whole first chapter and a half of his letter. He says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the one who created heaven and earth. Jesus is the one who's the, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is the one. 
that you need to look to Colossians. Jesus is the one who saved you, Colossians. Jesus is the one who nailed your sins on the cross, Colossians. For the first chapter and a half, he brings the Colossians back to Jesus. For the first chapter and a half, he points the Colossians to Jesus. He says that your record of debt was nailed to the cross with Jesus. Which means when you and I woke up this morning, if you are a believer in Jesus, your record of sin wasn't nailed to you. So when you woke up this morning, the things that you did yesterday, the things that you did last night, the things that you did last week, the thing you haven't been able to forgive yourself for for five years, when you woke up this morning, that record of debt was not nailed to you. Because when we put our faith in Christ, that record of debt was nailed to the cross. And for the first chapter and a half, Paul is trying to bring these Colossian believers off of their performance, off of how good they're doing, off of how validated they feel when they do well, and bring them back to Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith. He's saying, when he nailed that sin to the cross, it was finished. And now when you wake up this morning, the record that is nailed to you is not a record of debt. It's a record of righteousness. It's a record of love. It's a record of acceptance from a holy God. Jesus nailed our record of debt to that cross. Paul says the performance question has been answered. Why are you still trying to figure out your performance? Why are you still trying to figure out if you've been good enough for God? You haven't been good enough for God. The message of the gospel is that we have all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. We've all fallen short of God's standard. You cannot be a Christian if you don't believe that we've fallen short of the standard of God. You can't be a Christian if you believe that you have done well, that you've performed enough to make God happy. The only way you can become a Christian is to believe I've sinned against a holy God and He hung on a tree for me. He died my punishment so that I would be accepted. He died my punishment so that I would be made right. Not by my own works, but by faith in Him. That's the message of the gospel. So the performance question's been answered. And Paul starts his letter to these Colossians with this. Or this, this verse that we're looking at with this. Therefore, because all these things he's just written about, let no one pass judgment on you in regard to questions of food and drink, with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. The word the Greek word here for judge, let no one pass judgment on you. It was a word used for a referee in that day during, during sporting activities. So these Colossian false teachers had essentially become like referees, running around throwing penalty flags at everyone. You didn't do that. Do it more. Don't do that. Don't do this. Blowing their whistle at everyone throwing their penalty flags, trying to referee this game of life for Colossian believers. See, the Colossians thought when they started their walk with Jesus that now Jesus was their priest. Jesus was their referee. Jesus was going to call the shots in their life. But these Colossian false teachers kind of rise up in the midst and start trying to referee and call the shots 
for the Colossians' lives. Back then it looked like new moons and Sabbath days and festivals. Today it could look like, my goodness, you don't read your Bible 45 minutes a day? Man, what a horrible Christian. It could look like you don't spend your 15 minutes a day keeping the devil away. You don't pray, you know, like me. You don't see visions like me. You don't lift your hands in worship. Man, you don't lift your hands in worship? You really, you know, it should have been to the New Moon Festival. God's not happy. You didn't lift your hand. God's not, you're not good enough. You're not smiling all the time? Why aren't you smiling more? Don't you know you're a Christian and Christians are happy? We have joy. I mean, we have... But it can, it can begin to feel like we've got all these things to measure up to. And Paul doesn't take this lightly. Paul doesn't take it lightly at all. He commands the Colossians not to let others judge them because he knows that listening to another judge, listening to someone declare over them that they need to perform to be accepted by God, doesn't just, it's not just a thinking change. It's not just a bit of a different perspective. It's not just a cute little tack on to the Christian faith. Paul knows that this performance mentality will completely sever the Colossians from their union with Christ. He knows that this performance mentality isn't just a cute little tack on. It's a complete severing from Jesus being their head and these rules becoming their head for them. If the Supreme Court declares you not guilty, so if someone throws a penalty flag at you and says, you're a no good Christian, why do you even try? And the Supreme Court, God Almighty says, you are not guilty, you are righteous. You can live out of this righteousness, you can live out of this grace. And yet you say, no, I think I'm gonna take the penalty. I think I'm gonna take that flag of guilt. I'm going to take that flag of always feeling like I can't do enough. Always feeling like I can't measure up. We're essentially saying, I don't want the Supreme Court's declaration over me. This little claim court pops up and says, you're not doing enough. We're saying, okay, I'll listen to you, claims court. I'll go off into slavery. I'll go be a slave to the law again. I'll go be a slave to my performance. I'll walk away from Jesus. We tend to think of walking away from Jesus as walking into sin, right? We tend to think if I just walk into doing bad things, then I'm walking away from Jesus. Well, actually, we can walk away from Jesus by just putting our head into good things. But Paul is trying to lift our head to look at Jesus. This whole righteousness issue, this whole performance issue, it's not a little one. It's, it's the bedrock of our entire salvation. If the gospel really is that you and I are sinners and that on that, Christ, on that cross, Jesus died for our sin, he's, that's the only hope for us having a relationship with God. If that really is the gospel, then this, this is the bedrock of our entire salvation. The fact that we are accepted by grace and not by what we do is the bedrock of our entire salvation. It's core to who we are. And I think some would want to take that away from us. I think the enemy of our souls would want to take that away from us. I think the enemy would love to make us think that if we're just good people and we just do enough good, then God's going to be happy with us. 
we're going to be fulfilling kind of our calling in this Christian life. I mean, not trusting in Jesus can look like rebelling and sinning against Him. Not trusting in Jesus can also look like doing life in my own strength. Not trusting in Jesus can also look like trying to perform so that God will validate me and other people will validate me. Not trusting in Jesus was the problem of the older brother. Right? So the younger brother runs off into sin. The older brother stays at home. He does the right thing. What we often miss is that the older brother is the one who gets rebuked. The older brother is the one who doesn't celebrate in the party. He's the one who doesn't celebrate in the redemption of God. Having this mindset of, I've done the right things, therefore I deserve good things. I've performed, therefore, my, or I haven't performed. It cuts us off from the celebration of God. Paul says these Colossian false teachers were worshiping the shadow and not the substance. In Genesis 1, God creates, and then we sin against him. So he creates man and woman to walk with him, to love him, to live for him. And then they sin against him. They kind of cut off this relationship with him. Genesis 3, God promises that he's going to send someone who will redeem us from our sin. He's going to send someone who will redeem us from this rebellion that we've walked out with in God. That it's going to come sometime in the future. It says that this one will crush the head of Satan who led us into the sin. So Genesis 1, God creates, it's all good. He loves us, he's for us. Genesis, we walk away from him. Genesis 3, he promises to send someone to redeem that. And then in the first, first page of the New Testament, we see Jesus on the scene, right? And Jesus is the one who's going to redeem us. Jesus is the one who lived the perfect life and died the perfect death so that you and I could have relationship with God. And in between then, is what Paul's talking about when he describes this shadow. He's saying this shadow is a season, a time in the Old Testament where they couldn't see what the Savior was going to look like yet. They couldn't, think of it kind of like a building. They couldn't see the building yet. They couldn't see the future yet, but they could see a shadow of the future. So they had sacrifices to represent the sacrifice that Jesus would make on the cross. They had laws to tutor them, to teach them you're not good enough, to teach them that there's actually a way of righteousness, there's a way of holiness, there's a way of living the good life that God loves and adores, that God created and is good. The law was a tutor to teach them and lead them to the point of seeing when Jesus came. And what Paul's saying is, these Colossian false teachers, by imposing these laws and by imposing these standards for the Christian life, are worshiping the shadow. The shadow came so that we could see the substance. The substance is Jesus. So Paul's saying, you fools. You fools, you're worshiping the shadow. We can come to a meeting like this and sit down and look to the person next to us and think, you know, they don't seem to have it as together as I do. I think I'm doing better in life than them. We can sit down next to someone and think, man, that guy really seems to have it put together. Really seem to be doing good. 
they probably have a great marriage and a great life and no problems. And Sometimes we get stuck worshiping the shadow and not coming to the substance. The substance isn't you and I. The substance isn't our performance. The substance is Jesus. The Old Testament was just one massive shadow, one massive sign pointing to Jesus. It's kind of like following the signs to a Cardinals game, getting all the way to the parking lot, walking up to the stadium doors, and thinking, no, I think I missed something. I see all these Cardinals, but that sign back there said the way to the Cardinals stadium. I'm going to go back to that sign and see if I can't find a game in there. See if I can't find... I almost said Pujols, so I won't say Pujols, but find my favorite player in there. It's foolish. The signs were to point us to the game so that we could watch the game. The law, the standard for holiness, is to point us to the fact that we couldn't ever meet the standard of holiness, and we need someone who had done it for us. We need someone who could redeem us. The law was to point us to Christ. In Luke 10, 24, Jesus says, For I tell you, many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. He's saying, look, the prophets and the kings prophesied about me to come. I've come. You don't need to get your head all puffed up with visions about who's who in the heavenly realm and What's going on in the spiritual world? Paul's saying, get your head out of the ground. The greatest spiritual reality of all mankind just happened. So they got puffed up in their head, right? With these visions they were having and their self-inflicting humility. Paul's saying, get your head out of the ground. The greatest spiritual reality from the beginning of time to the end of time that God would send His Son to die on a cross for us. That three days later, Jesus, after he dies, rises from the dead and is alive today, serving his people, pouring out the Spirit on his people, lavishing his grace on his people, showing love to his people, redeeming person after person to himself. Paul's saying, get your head out of the sky and wake up to the greatest spiritual reality that's ever been Jesus, namely Jesus. These Colossian false teachers were paying a lot of attention to angels. They were thinking about angels and trying to figure out which angel does what and how do the angels function and how do I get to know the angels better and how can I get on the, the favor and the good side of the angels. Kind of like, you know, which angel can help me find my car keys? Which angel can help me heal my back? Which angel can, you know, where's the Cupid angel? I want to find a spouse. You know, it's... They got caught up in the angelic world, thinking the angelic world had the answers and the, you know, the greater spiritual realms. Well, guess what, Colossians? The angels are worshiping Jesus. The angels are singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The angels are looking to Him and finding delight in Him. The angels are being sent by Him when they do help. The angels are being commanded by Him. I think we're a bit crazy to go to the angels and look for what we need. 
Paul's saying, don't go. Yeah, if, if an angel comes to you, awesome. Love to hear about it. We love the prophetic here at Jubilee. We love to hear God and what He's saying to us. But we love it because it brings us to Jesus. We love it not because it's some great you know, vision we got or some thing of the heavenly realm that I can understand more now. We love it because it helps us see and know and find delight in Jesus. Paul's saying, guys, get your head out of the ground. Colossians, get your head out of there. Let's not get caught up in all these you know, self-inflicting regimens, all these spiritual things. Let's get caught up. Let's be consumed with. Let's be thinking about Jesus. It's all about Him. There's a difference. It's kind of dis- distinctive. You have to pay attention to it. But there's a difference between the Colossian false teaching and the Christian teaching that really makes it go these two different directions. And the difference is that the Colossian false teaching focuses on us, and the Christian false teaching focuses on Jesus. The Colossian false teaching focuses on the result of our faith. The Christian teaching focuses on the object of our faith. So the Colossian false teaching says the goal is faith, the goal is purity, the goal is spirituality, The Christian teaching says the goal is Jesus, and He is the one who all purity comes from. He is the greatest spirituality. He is the one who loves God the most. So getting caught up with, I need to love God more, you need to love God more, we need to do these things, doesn't really help us. But getting caught up with Jesus who loves God helps us a lot. See the difference? When this group met together, it wasn't about Jesus. It was about them. It was a religious exterior. It was something to help them feel better about themselves. It was something to help them compare with themselves. And I think what Paul's bringing us to is he's saying, guys, I want you to have the good life. I want you to find an ever-increasing delight in the holiness that God leads you into and the spiritual reality of what you have. But I, I, I want to, Paul's saying, I think I, I want to help you not get so off track, but I want to help you find the holiness you long for and the spiritual reality you long for. And it's all found in Jesus. It's all found in Him. He's calling us to hold fast to the head. That's what he says to the Colossians. He says, hold fast to the head. Hold fast to Jesus. Make him the center of our lives. Set him up on the mantle place of our hearts. Allow him to be our chief joy, our greatest pleasure. The question is really, how do we hold fast to the head? How do we go about doing that? We just start reading our Bible. That's a really good thing to do. The Bible's full of the word of God. It's full of what he's spoken throughout time. If I do that, will that cause me to hold fast to the... If I just pray, will that cause me to hold fast to the head? If I come on Sundays, will that cause me to... If I serve my neighbor, will that cause me to hold fast? If I, you know, reach my friends who don't know Jesus, if I perform at work and I'm a good employee, if I... What is it that causes us to hold fast to the head? Christian information, if I just get the right information, will I hold fast to the head? Colossians 2.19 should be on the screen for us. Paul says, holding fast to the head is that the whole body 
nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. So what are the joints and ligaments? People, right? I mean, we know. 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, if you haven't read that before, it talks about different parts of the body, different members of the body, and how all these members, these parts kind of functioning together, that's the body of Christ. So we in this room who are believers in Jesus, we're the body of Christ. And as the body of Christ, we all have different roles and different gifts, but we come together as one body. So when Paul says being, being knit together through its joints and ligaments, he's saying being knit together to each other. Us being knit together is how we hold fast to the head. So it's not, although programs and studies and activities, those are all good, but it's really as we come together, that's when we hold fast to the head. So what does it mean to really come together? What does it mean to be knit together to each other? How does that look in the Christian life? Can you get off the hook if you just come on Sundays? I mean, is that like, okay, I'm being knit together if I come on Sundays? What about if you attend a community group, right? I mean, we at Jubilee, if you've been around long enough, you're annoyed with community groups. You're like, quit talking about community groups. We get it. If this is your first time, we're going to talk about community groups. It's a way to be together. But attending a community group, does that count? If I do that, am I being knit together? If I serve on Sundays, if I get involved with the kids, get my hands dirty a bit, does that mean that I am being knit together? I don't know that I can say there's a checkbox of if you do these things, you'll be knit together. But maybe, maybe another way of saying it that would be helpful would kind of be like this cloth. This cloth is a combination of multiple different strings, thread, whatever you want to call it, being knit together. And so although a, you know, a million little individual strings, threads, it's one cloth. So if I tug on this side of the cloth, this side of the cloth follows, right? If I try and follow one thread of the cloth all the way through, I really can't I can see individual threads, barely, but I can't follow one all the way through because it's so interconnected with the rest of them. If I move one side, the other side moves. If I punch the cloth and it hurt, you know, if I hurt the cloth, I can't hurt the cloth, but go with me. If I hurt the cloth, it's not like one little string feels it, right? They all feel it. If I put the cloth under water, I can't just get one little string wet, right? The whole portion of the cloth is going to get wet under water. But if I were to put this cloth up next to this cloth and just set them next to each other, you wouldn't say that it was one cloth, would you? Because it's two cloths. This, this is a bunch of threads, but it's one cloth. This is a bunch of threads, and it's one cloth, but they aren't one cloth together. And the, the reason is because they haven't been knit together, right? So if we knit these together and spent some time sewing them up, they'd be one cloth. But because they're separate, because I can just pull them apart easily, they're two separate cloths. Well, in the same way, I can show up on Sunday and sit next to you, or I can show up at community group and sit next to you, but if I'm not knit together in love with you, we're still two separate cloths. We're not really becoming one and becoming that one body that holds fast to that one head. 
So my question for you is, are you being knit together with other people? Or are you really just kind of one cloth off on your own, not being knit to other cloths? I'll give you a few biblical phrases that might help. Here's a few biblical phrases we see in the New Testament that um, might help us figure out what does it mean to be knit together. Well, here's what, here's what I came up with. Love one another, so loving others, preferring one another, becoming of one mind, speaking the truth in love, encouraging one another, singing songs to one another, serving one another, bearing one another's burdens, caring for one another. Hebrews says, encourage one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 10 says, don't neglect to, be, to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is why we're so big at Jubilee on events like Celebration Midwest. This is why we pump and talk about and kind of breathe for a little while Celebration Midwest because we don't want to just say, yeah, we're family, we're one body, we're knit together in love, and then we all have our own separate lives. But we want to really be a family together. We want to go on family retreats together, which is what this is. We want to go get with God together. We want to have one vision. If you ask this cloth what they were praying for, they might say one thing. If you ask this cloth what they're praying for, they might say another thing. But when we're one cloth, our prayers are the same. So we're praying together that St. Louis City would be reached. If you're in a community group, you're praying together that that one friend of yours might know Jesus. If one's praying, you're all praying. If you're in a community group and you're hurting, other people in your community are hurting. If something good's happened in your life and you're celebrating, other people celebrate with you. Because we don't function as individuals, we, we function as one. And this is a huge one for us. I mean, I don't, I, I struggle with this all the time still. I struggle with thinking it's my time, it's my day, it's my afternoon, it's my, it's my plan that I had. But laying down my life so that I could be connected to others is far more valuable than being just an individual separated out there, trying to hold fast to a head but not being connected to his body. If you can grab out your communication card for me real quick. Don't get your hopes up. It's not over. <laughs> grab out your communication card. On the back of your card, there's a box at the top right. If you're in a community group here at Jubilee, I'd like you to just check that box on the top right. I want to I commit to my community group. If, if while I'm talking you feel, man, I've, I've been in a group, I've been around people, but I haven't given myself to people, why don't you just check, I want to commit to a community group. And on the bottom left of that back card, if you're not in a community group here, go ahead and check just send me some more information. Just tell me a little bit more. I know it's scary. I know it's a huge jump to get into community, to commit like that to other people. Just check. I want some more information about this. I would love to call you. I'd love to talk to you about how to get more plugged in to others here at Jubilee. Let's keep reading. Colossians 2.20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you are still alive in the world, do you submit 
to regulation. So do you see Paul's argument? He's saying, if you died with Christ, why do you still submit to these regulations of the world? So he's saying, if you are a person under regulations and you die, then you're no longer under those regulations, right? But if you were raised with Christ and now you're under Him, then be under Him, but not under these. So essentially, he's making a death-life analogy here. He's saying, he's saying, you were alive and you were under the regulations of the law because all had sinned and all had fallen short of God's standard. Therefore, we all had to live under these regulations. We all had to live under the punishment of these regulations. Paul's saying, if you've died with Christ, if you've believed the gospel, and you've been raised with Christ, then why are you still submitting to these regulations? That guy died. Right? So why still submit when you've been raised and now you're under him? He fleshes it out a bit more in Romans 7, 1 through 4. He compares this death and life to being married to law or being married to Jesus. He says, the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Paul's saying when we turn to a performance-based Christianity, when we look at our performance and function out of our performance, we're not just adding a little something to the Christian walk. He's saying we're actually going back to our old husband. Now, Jesus didn't come after us lightly. He didn't come after us in a shallow way. He came after us wholeheartedly. So if we were to say to our spouse, hey, I'm just going to go on a little weekend fling with another person. Not a big deal. Just need a few days. That would not fly. <laughs> and it shouldn't fly. Well, if we're to say to Jesus, hey, I just want to relate out of my performance for a little while. I'm doing really good today. I just want to relate out of my performance. I, I can't forgive myself for that thing. We're saying to him, I want to go on a weekend fling away from you and back to law. That's not going to fly with him. He's not down for that. He wants us to be all in with him and all in with this message of it's because we're weak that we get to delight in his strength not because of our performance but because of his strength towards us grace law tells me that i have to do this and i have to do that and i don't have a choice and i'm under the law grace teaches me that because he's so good, because he's loved me so much, I don't want to sin. See, grace teaches me to say no to sin. Whereas law, I'm just performing and laboring under it. In grace, I want to work for God. In grace, I want to follow God. In grace, I don't want to sin. Grace teaches us to say no to sin. Love, not duty, becomes our motivation 
And actually, because we've been so loved, because we've been so accepted, it frees us to give ourselves away. We're laboring under law. We really don't want to give ourselves away. We want to hold as much as we can and just do the little we have to to get by. But when we're functioning under grace, we're free to give ourselves away because we know we've been totally loved. We know we've been totally accepted. We know there's a God in heaven who's working on our behalf. It frees me to give myself away. Actually, when I'm hesitant to give myself away, it's like a red flag that tells me I'm not, I'm not believing the truth that he's fully given himself to me. I'm feeling as though I have to hold on to things for myself and not give myself away. Last verse here, Colossians 2.23 says, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom. This performance has indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value. Say no value. And no stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So performance promises the ability to change us. That's why we run to it. It promises the ability to make things better, but it never delivers. That's why we have these six-step programs, right? You read a blog or you catch a clip or you hear something on TV that's kind of cliche and nice and, yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm going to, these six steps, these six principles, these six things, I'm going to give myself to that and I'll be good. I'll just never screw up for God again. I'm going to get out my Bible, Bible reading plans are great. I'm going to get out my Bible reading plan and God's going to love me because I'm going to read my Bible every day, seven days a week, four chapters a day. I'm never going to miss. Three weeks in, okay, I'm five days late. I got six days to read. I'm going to do it. But the law never delivers. It doesn't produce in us a hunger for him. It produces in us, I need to make up for the last six days. The law doesn't produce delight in Jesus. It doesn't produce a closer intimacy with him. It produces a closer intimacy with our guilt. The law will never work for us. Performance will never work for us. But God does call us to walk with Him. And God does call us to walk this life following Him. So the question really is, how do we do that? How do we not just receive this grace, but how do we walk in this grace? And Galatians 5, verse 16, I think, gives us our answer. Paul writes, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not desire, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So you want to walk free from the desires of the flesh? You want to walk free from this indulgence in your flesh? Walk by the Spirit. Get plugged into His head. Get plugged into the Spirit of Jesus. He's alive and active, moving today, working today in us. Get plugged in to the Spirit. And we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. We need to learn to discern grace versus performance thinking. So I've got just a few things here that I think will help us discern grace versus performance thinking. When we're functioning out of grace, we have our roots and our fruits in Jesus. When we're functioning out of performance, we have our roots and our fruits in ourselves. Make sense? Yeah. 
Grace produces a love for Jesus and a hunger to know him more. Performance produces a restless and tired heart. Feeling restless and tired? Maybe you need to come back to grace. Because grace produces a hunger for him and actually gives us the grace to do the things he calls us to do. Performance is laborsome and heavy and makes us tired. Are you feeling the grace to do the things God's called you to do? Grace teaches us to see Jesus and say yes to him. Performance teaches me to look at myself and try and fix my problems on my own. Paul appeals to us to not be deceived by the appearance of wisdom, but all that we need for life and godliness is found in Jesus. Can we give ourselves to the true wisdom today? Can we be a grace people? Can we be a people who stand on his grace, who live in his grace, who delight in his grace? Can we be a people that when we fail, we don't get out the punching bag and knock ourselves around a bit, but be a people that when we fail, we look at him and his grace and all that he's done for us and realize that it's enough we be a people that when we're feeling the tiredness and the heaviness of life, we tap into his grace, not tap into what we need to do next? We at Jubilee are a grace people. We love the grace of God. We find a lot of delight in the grace of God. We sing about the grace of God. We talk about the grace of God. We would love to invite you along to delight in that grace with us.